This is the JPGN podcast for February 2009. I'm James Liu. This podcast will outline selected articles from this month's issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. For more information and to access complete articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. That's www.naspghan.org. Our first article is entitled, Clinical Evidence for Immunomodulatory Effects of Probiotic Bacteria by Rumeli, Beer, Marteau, Reckhammer, Bourdais-Sicard, Walker, and Goulet. Close, tightly orchestrated interactions between the intestinal epithelium and the mucosa-associated immune system are critical for normal intestinal absorptive and immunological functions. Recent data indicate that commensal intestinal microbiota represents a major modulator of intestinal homeostasis. This review analyzes the process of intestinal colonization and the interaction of microbiota with the intestinal epithelium and mucosal immune system, with special reference to the first years of extrauterine life. Dysregulation of the symbiotic interaction between intestinal microbiota and the mucosa may result in a pathological condition with potential clinical repercussions. Based on the concept that there is a beneficial and symbiotic relation between the host and endogenous microbiota, strategies aimed at directly modulating intestinal microbiota with regard to disease prevention or treatment have been developed. One strategy involves administering viable probiotic bacteria. Clinical evidence for the beneficial effect of probiotics in the prevention and or treatment of necrotizing enterocolitis, infectious and antibiotic-associated diarrhea, allergic diseases, and inflammatory bowel disorders is reviewed herein. Our next article is entitled, Peptide YY Induces Intestinal Proliferation in Peptide YY Knockout Mice with Total Enteral Nutrition After Massive Small Bowel Resection by Wei Ming Zhu, Wei Zhang, Jian Feng Gong, Chen Huang, Yi Chao Shi, Chou Rong Li, Ning Li, and Jie Shou Li. Objective. In previous research, peptide YY administered in supraphysiological doses did not induce significant proliferative effects in rats which were allowed to feed ad lib after massive small bowel resection. The main reason may well have been the interference of endogenous peptide YY released from L cells in the distal bowel in response to the presence of augmented, unabsorbed intraluminal nutrients. The purpose of the present study was to explore the effect of peptide YY on intestinal proliferation with total enteral nutrition in a small bowel resection model of peptide YY knockout mice, which do not produce endogenous peptide YY. Materials and Methods Peptide YY knockout mice were assigned into three experimental groups. Sham mice underwent bowel transection and reanastomosis. Small bowel resection mice underwent a 50% small bowel resection. And small bowel resection peptide YY mice underwent a 50% small bowel resection and were treated with peptide YY subcutaneously from day two postoperatively. Parameters of enterocyte proliferation and apoptosis were determined on day 8 following operation.
Results. Small bowel resection peptide YY mice demonstrated a significant increase compared to small bowel resection mice in bowel and mucosal weights, mucosal DNA and protein, villus height, and crypt depth in jejunum and ileum. Small bowel resection peptide YY mice also showed an increased crypt cell proliferation index in jejunum and ileum and a decreased villus cell apoptotic index in ileum compared with small bowel resection animals. Conclusions. In a small bowel resection model of peptide YY knockout mice, peptide YY induces proliferation of residual intestine with total enteral nutrition. Our next article is entitled Dissociation Between Symptoms and Histological Severity in Pediatric Eosinophilic Esophagitis by Scott Pentiuk, Philip Putman, Margaret Collins, and Mark Rothenberg. Objectives. The relation between patient symptoms and histological severity of eosinophilic esophagitis is not known. We created a pediatric EE symptom score and compared the results with histological findings in the esophagus. Patients and methods. Subjects ages 3 to 18 years with a histological diagnosis of EE or their parent completed a survey rating the frequency and severity of their gastrointestinal symptoms. Scores ranged from 0 to 98. Eosinophil numbers in esophageal biopsy specimens were correlated with the pediatric EE symptom score. Results. A total of 49 subjects completed the pediatric EE symptom score. The symptom score did not correlate with the peak eosinophil count, with an R-square value of 0.079. Newly diagnosed untreated EE subjects with an N of 15, had a mean score of 24.7 plus or minus 16.4 with a modest correlation between the pediatric EE symptom score and the number of eosinophils in the distal esophagus with an R-square value of 0.37. The mean pediatric EE symptom score in the 34 treated patients was lower than in untreated patients, 15.6 plus or minus 12.9 with a p-value of 0.046. The mean score for treated patients in histological remission was the same as for treated patients with active EE, regardless of treatment type. Abdominal pain was the most frequent and severe symptom reported. Among 20 of the 34 subjects, or 58.8%, in histological remission, 17, or 85%, continued to report symptoms with a mean score of 17.4 plus or minus 9.9 with a range of 1 to 38. Three children with active histological EE, or 10%, reported no symptoms. Conclusions Children with untreated EE had a higher pediatric EE symptom score than treated subjects. Symptoms persisted in 85% of EE patients despite histological resolution, and 10% with active EE reported no symptoms. Our data indicate a dissociation between symptoms and histology in pediatric EE. Our next article is entitled, Status of Anti-Saccharomyces cerevisiae Antibodies is Associated with Oral Involvement and Disease Severity in Crohn's Disease, by Russell, Ip, Aldos, McDougall, Drummond, Arnott, Gillette, McGrogan, Weaver, Bissett, Mahdi, and Wilson. Objectives. 
To determine Antisaccharomyces cerevisiae antibody status, or ASCA, and its relation to disease phenotype in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Patients and methods. A total of 301 Scottish patients with early onset IBD and 78 healthy control individuals were studied. Of the early onset IBD patients, 197 had Crohn's disease, 76 had ulcerative colitis, and 28 had indeterminate colitis. IgA and IgG ASCA status was determined by ELISA. ASCA status was then analyzed in relation to Crohn's disease phenotype. Results. Patients with Crohn's disease had a higher prevalence of ASCA than did patients with ulcerative colitis, with an odds ratio of 3.80. Patients with Crohn's disease also had a higher prevalence of ASCA than did healthy control individuals, with an odds ratio of 8.56. Univariate analysis showed that positive ASCA status was associated with oral Crohn's disease, perianal Crohn's disease, and the presence of granulomata, and also with markers of disease severity, such as raised C-reactive protein, hypoalbuminemia, and surgery. From multivariate analysis, the presence of oral disease and hypoalbuminemia was found to be independently associated with ASCA status. No association was demonstrated between ASCA and IBD candidate genes. Conclusions Patients with Crohn's disease had a higher prevalence of ASCA than did other patients with IBD. ASCA status described patients with Crohn's disease with a specific phenotype, showing an association with markers of disease severity and oral Crohn's disease involvement. Our next article is entitled Growth abnormalities persist in newly diagnosed children with Crohn's disease despite current treatment paradigms by Pfefferkorn, Burke, Griffiths, Markowitz, Roche, Mack, Otley, Kugathason, Evans, Busvaros, Moyer, Wiley, Oliva Hemker, Carvalho, Crandall, Keljo, Walters, Laleco, and Hyams. Objectives. We analyzed growth outcomes in children newly diagnosed with Crohn's disease and determined whether growth abnormalities persist despite current therapies. Patients and Methods Clinical and growth data were prospectively obtained on an inception cohort younger than 16 years old at diagnosis and Tanner 1 to 3 during the study. Results In all, 176 children with mild disease at diagnosis 33%, or moderate to severe disease at diagnosis, 67%, were studied. After one year, disease activity was inactive or mild in 89%, or moderate to severe in 11%. First-year treatments included immunomodulators, 60%, corticosteroids, 77%, 5-ASAs, 61%, infliximab, 15%, and enteral nutrition, 10%. By two years, 86% had received immunomodulators and 36% infliximab. Mean height z-scores at diagnosis, one year, and two years were negative 0.49, negative 0.5, and negative 0.46 standard deviations, respectively. Of the subjects, 10%, 8%, and 6.5% had height z-scores less than negative 2 standard deviations at diagnosis, one year, and two years. 
a height velocity z-score less than negative one standard deviation was seen in 45% of subjects at one year and 38% at two years. The mean height velocity z-score, however, increased between one and two years from negative 0.71 to 0.26 with a p-value of less than 0.03. Corticosteroid use greater than six months in the first year was associated with abnormal height velocity at one year, with an adjusted odds ratio of 4.5 and a 95% confidence interval of 2.2 to 9.6. No statistically significant effect on height velocity z-scores was noted when comparing those receiving or not receiving infliximab. Conclusions Growth delay persists in many children with Crohn's disease following diagnosis, despite improved disease activity and the frequent use of immunomodulators and biologics. Additional strategies to improve growth outcomes require development. The next article is entitled Alteration of Canalicular Transporters in a Mouse Model of Total Parenteral Nutrition by Yuko Tazuke and Daniel Teitelbaum. Objectives Parenteral nutrition-associated liver disease is a major problem with prolonged total parenteral nutrition administration. Our laboratory previously demonstrated significant changes in the expression of multidrug resistance genes 1 and 2, two hepatocyte transporters in a TPN mouse model. The present study hypothesized that these changes would lead to functional changes in the liver and would contribute to the development of liver dysfunction. Materials and Methods Mice received either intravenous saline and standard chow or TPN with or without intravenous lipids. Functional assays were performed after seven days of infusion. Results TPN with lipids led to a significant increase in serum bile acid levels consistent with an early state of parenteral nutrition-associated liver disease. Use of TPN without lipids prevented elevation in bile acid levels. In both TPN groups, multidrug resistance gene 2 expression was 68% lower than controls, and bile phosphatidylcholine content, a functional measure of multidrug resistance gene 2, was 40% less than controls. Multidrug resistance gene 1 expression in the TPN with lipid group was 31% higher than controls, whereas in the TPN without lipids mice, there was no significant change. Hepatocyte extrusion of rhodamine dye, a measure of MDR1 function, declined only in TPN with lipids. Peroxisome proliferator activated receptor alpha expression decreased in both TPN groups. Phenofibrate given with TPN resulted in an increased expression of MDR1 and MDR2 and functionally increased hepatocyte rhodamine extrusion and presence of bile phosphatidylcholine in the TPN with lipid group. Conclusions The study shows that TPN led to alterations in the function of MDR1 and MDR2 expressed proteins. The changes help in the understanding of the mechanisms leading to parenteral nutrition-associated liver disease and suggest that fibrate administration may palliate these changes. Our next article is entitled High Titer Antibody to Hepatitis B Surface Antigen Before Liver Transplantation Can Prevent De Novo Hepatitis B Infection by Wei Ju Su, Ming Chi Ho, Yen Xuan Ni, Hui Ling Chen, Rei Heng Hu, Yao Ming Wu, Mei Hui Chang, and Po Huang Li. Objectives 
De novo hepatitis B virus infection is defined as infection occurring in hep B surface antigen negative patients who become hep B surface antigen positive after organ transplantation. We assessed the incidence and risk factors of de novo hep B infection in pediatric liver transplant recipients. Patients and methods. From 1996 to 2006, 71 Taiwanese children with non-Hep B-related liver diseases underwent orthotopic liver transplant at the National Taiwan University Hospital. All of the surviving recipients were tested regularly for liver function, serum levels of immunosuppressant, Hep B surface antigen, titers of antibodies to hepatitis B surface antigen, antibodies to hepatitis B core antigen, and antibodies to hepatitis C virus. Hep B vaccination histories and the anti-hepatitis B surface antibody titers before liver transplantation were recorded. No regular prophylaxis was given. Results. 59 patients, comprised of 33 girls and 26 boys, were followed up for a median of 4.4 years, with a range of 1 to 10 years. Of those, 36, or 61%, received allografts from anti-hepatitis B core positive and hepatitis B surface antigen negative donors. De novo hepatitis B infection was found in nine patients, or 15.3%, after liver transplantation, eight of whom received allografts from hepatitis B surface antigen negative and anti-hepatitis B core positive donors. 48 patients, or 81.4%, received three or more doses of hepatitis B vaccine before orthotopic liver transplant. Pre-liver transplant anti-hepatitis B surface antibody titers were available for 49 recipients. Of the nine de novo hepatitis B infected recipients, eight had anti-hepatitis B surface antibody titers of less than 200 milli international units per milliliter. No graft loss or fulminant hepatitis was noted. Conclusions. In the absence of adequate prophylaxis, the incidence of de novo hepatitis B infection in pediatric orthotopic liver transplant recipients is 15.3%. An anti-hepatitis B surface antibody titer of over 200 milli international units per milliliter before liver transplantation may be sufficient to prevent de novo hepatitis B infection in hepatitis B surface antigen negative recipients. Our final article is entitled, Changing the Paradigm, Omegaven for the Treatment of Liver Failure in Pediatric Short Bowel Syndrome, by Ivan Diamond, Anka Sturescu, Paul Penchars, Jay Kim, and Paul Wales. Background. Parenteral omega-3 fatty acids, such as omegavin, may benefit patients with pediatric short bowel syndrome who develop parenteral nutrition-associated liver disease. Patients and Methods Retrospective cohort describing the outcome of all 12 children with short bowel syndrome and advanced parenteral nutrition-associated liver disease who were treated with omegavin. Results The median age was 7.5 months, with a range of 3.6 to 46 months, and median parenteral nutrition duration before starting omegavin was 28.4 weeks, with a range of 15.3 to 55.3 weeks. Median initial serum conjugated bilirubin was 137 micromoles per liter, with a range of 54 to 203 micromoles per liter, or 8.06 milligrams per deciliter, with a range of 3.18 to 11.94 milligrams per deciliter. 
Of the 12 patients, nine had complete and sustained resolution of hyperbilirubinemia within a median of 24 weeks with a range of 7 to 37 weeks, and all are no longer being considered for liver transplantation. Improvements in markers of hepatic inflammation, as well as nutritional status, also were noted in these patients. Three patients received a liver intestine transplant while taking omegaven. There were no complications attributable to omegaven. Conclusions Omegaven is associated with restoration of liver function in patients with short bowel syndrome and advanced liver disease. Parenteral omega-3 fatty acids, such as omegaven, have the potential to fundamentally alter the paradigm of neonatal short bowel syndrome from one of early death or transplantation from liver failure to a more chronic disease. More children with short bowel syndrome should achieve full enteral tolerance, and those who do not have the capacity for intestinal adaptation should be able to survive and receive an intestinal graft when older. This concludes the JPGN podcast for February 2009. The executive producer is Daniel Gelfond. The editor-in-chief of JPGN is Eric Sibley. The JPGN podcast is recorded by the Pediatric GI Fellows of Stanford University. For more information and to access full articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. Thank you.